Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. Well, we're going to couch sports business for the week in order to look back 20 years ago when Loyola Marymount basketball star Hank Gathers collapsed and died during the WCC tournament in Los Angeles. We're going to bring you interviews with several of the key members of the 1989-90 Loyola Marymount men's basketball team, get their thoughts on that magical season, as well as hear from them about what they've been doing over the past 20 years, a question I'm asked often. We're also going to be joined by Kyle Keiterling. He's the author of the book Heart of a Lion, The Life, Death, and Legacy of Hank Gathers. A couple of other notes, visit my Sports Business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SBRadio. I'm happy to be joined in studio by my KXLU broadcast partner, Keith Foreman, who is with me behind the mic for the 1989-90 basketball season down at Loyola Marymount. Keith and I were in Los Angeles a few weeks ago for the 20-year reunion of LMU's men's basketball team. Keith, uh, I can't believe it's been 20 years. I know. It, it has been. And it's taken, I think, this long for everybody to kind of go back and realize how unbelievably special and unique that season was. You know, it ended in tragedy, and the university kind of swept a lot of it under the rug. And now it's like because LMU's embraced the basketball team again and they're enjoying some success, people are kind of revisiting how amazing that that season was. The event that we went down to at Gersten Pavilion, you and I sat courtside. We called a game on KXLU. That was like being in a time warp for me, being back in our same broadcast location 20 years later your son jack was there i mean it was really kind of a thrill it was really cool i mean we sat exactly on the court where we did you know 20 years ago and we were 19 20 years old whatever and it was really cool that the university you know and the athletic department set that up and allowed us to do that and it was very cool to see people in the stands you know listening to the game on their radios the same way they did uh you know back in the day Again, no headlines this week. We are devoting the entire show this week to covering 20-year anniversary of Loyola Marymount's men's basketball team. Coming up next, Keith and I reflect on that magical season 20 years later. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. It's the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry. The Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training, sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. 
The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. This is Sports Business Radio. We're looking back 20 years later at the 1989-90 Loyola Marymount men's basketball team. I'm joined by my broadcast partner from that year, Keith Foreman. Keith, so many memorable games, matchups, magical things that happened that season. But let's give our listeners a snapshot of the 1989-90 season. Well, yeah, I mean, if you kind of chronologically run through the season, starting with Game 1 at UNLV, the eventual NCAA champion, Stacey Ogman, Larry Johnson, Craig Anthony, Anderson Hunt. Amazing game. They lost. LMU lost that game uh, 102-91, but, I mean, how many NBA players, you know, collectively were in that game? And that was the bomb threat game where uh, Loyola Marymount was running UNLV off the floor, right. and then a bomb threat was phoned into the Thomas and Mac Arena. Many people today think Jerry Tarkanian had something to do with that, and Loyola Marymount lost their momentum and went on and lost that game. The next game that stands out was the shootout at Oregon State. Uh, uh, LMU wins that game 117-113. Both Bo Kimball and Gary Payton go for 40-plus in that game in an unbelievable back-and-forth shootout. And that was the game after Hank Gathers collapsed, and many people thought, okay, Hank's not playing this game. LMU has no chance in that game. Not only did they win the game, but like you said, they did it in thrilling fashion. And we had beer spilled on us during the broadcast. I remember that, uh, yeah. Beaver Faithful. The next series that stands out was an amazing four-game or three-game roadie uh, starting in Xavier against Derek Hill, Tyrone Strong, uh, Derek Strong, Tyrone Hill, 20 NBA scouts lining the uh, uh, the sidelines there. LMU lost that game 115-113. Then we go to Philly and got a really good taste of Big Five basketball. Yeah, and we got to see where Bo and Hank grew up, and we met their families, and that was a really great trip, and Coach Westhead from Philadelphia as well. Exactly, and beat an undefeated 11th-ranked LaSalle team with uh, Lionel Simmons and Coach Speedy Morris, uh, 121-116. And then the amazing game, shot at the buzzer uh, to beat St. Joe's 99-96. We made WNBC because I had the most ridiculous call where I stepped on you, and you don't— uh, you. Give me grief about that to this day. And then hurdled press row, ran onto the court, and jumped all over everybody. Yes, I. that's not really what a broadcaster <laughs> should do. So 20 years later, uh, I'm a little more professional. But it was the passion that counted. Yes. Okay, so then we're in conference play. And then out of the blue, this there's this crazy game scheduled by CBS at LSU. And Stanley Roberts, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, uh, Chris Jackson – Unbelievable game. Well, and if people remember, that game took place on a Sunday, I believe, or maybe it was a Saturday. It was in between a USF and a St. Mary's game. So basically, LMU had to play three games, I think, in three days, one of which they had to fly halfway across the country to go play LSU in an overtime game. And lost 148-141, but we'll always remember like a thousand people surrounding the LMU bus as we pulled up to the uh, Maravich Assembly Center. And if you talk to the LMU players to a man, they tell you that was the game where they knew they could play with anyone. Right. And then, of course, the uh, second round of the tournament when Hank Gathers goes down, the team decides, you know what, we're going to we're going to try to play. And everybody knows they went on to the final eight, knocking off the defending national champion, uh, Michigan Wolverines. 
All right, I am asked all the time, what happened to so-and-so from the 1989-90 men's basketball team? Let's start the parade of interviews so we can hear from some of the members of that team what they're up to now. Let's start with Pear Steamer. All right, I'm with Pear Steamer. 20 years later, what have you been up to? Well, I played basketball for a couple more years after LMU, 10 more years up until uh, 2000. And then after that, I uh, tore my interior crucial ligament, so I stopped after that. But I've been coaching a little bit, uh, working now, working with a heavy truck manufacturer company, Scania. Do some basketball commentating on TV, so it's all nice. I have a big family, so that's nice. Give me your fondest memory of the 89-90 season. I know a lot of memories, but uh, is there one that sticks out? There's a lot of memories from that season, of course, that sticks out. It's both highs and lows, but uh, I think the whole season as a whole is the biggest. It's hard to pick out one single memory, but of course the Michigan game was amazing. Uh, Most of the games here at LMU were all uh, incredible, but just being a part of that uh, magical moment, magical team, was uh, very special. Have you been able to keep up with the guys, or is this the first time you're talking to a lot of them in uh, many years? This is the first time in five years I'm back here at Leola, and I uh, spoke, speak to Tom every now and then, Bo, uh, also keep in touch with Albert Gerson. So there's a couple of guys that I'm uh, trying to be in touch with. It's great to catch up with you, Pat. Thanks. Thank you. Coming up next, Kyle Keiterling, the author of the book Heart of a Lion, The Life, Death, and Legacy of Hank Gathers. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is NBA Commissioner David Stern. I thought you did a wonderful job of handling the game ball situation. You listened to your players and the owners, and ultimately I thought you got it right. What did you learn from that experience? It probably pays to go the extra step to build a consensus, even though you don't think there's any other view that makes sense. My guest is Jack Nicholas. What are the main lessons the game of golf can teach us if we pay close enough attention? You develop relationships with people. I think you play 18 holes of golf with somebody. You get to know them pretty well. We're joined by Bill Hancock. He's the executive director of the BCS. What we want is for the best two teams to play in the championship game. Beyond that, I'm not sure it's really fair to say what's good for the BCS or or what's bad for the BCS. Follow us at sportsbusinessradio.com and on Twitter at SB Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Kyle Keiterling. He's the author of the book Heart of a Lion, The Life, Death, and Legacy of Hank Gathers. You can order the book online at www.hankgathersbook.com. So, Kyle, I was the radio voice of the 1989-90 Loyola Marymount men's basketball team. I lived a good portion of this story that you've written about. You and I met in Portland a few years ago as you were doing your research for this newly released book. How long did it take you to compile all the information for this book? Well, it took me about two and a half years, and uh, I had no idea it was going to take that long. But uh, what happened was, as I began to do the research and the interviews, it just led me on a long and winding path to a very extraordinary story about a young man who grew up in the worst slum in America, uh, according to Newsweek magazine. 
and reached the very pinnacle of the basketball world. And he did so by just sheer grit, determination, and, and an indomitable will to succeed. Uh, Hank Gathers was an extraordinary young man. Uh, Paul Westhead, uh, his coach at Loyola Marymount University, once uh, said of Hank Gathers, there was nothing ordinary about Hank Gathers. He was a walking thunderbolt. And that's pretty much the description that that, uh, stuck with me uh, after I interviewed Paul, because everything about Hank Gathers was extraordinary. He, he, He was a the kind of person that touched men's souls. And, Brian, after interviewing people 17 and 18 years after the events of March 4th, 1990, I would still get from those players, those coaches, those that, that were there that day, a, a very strong emotional response. Uh, no one who, who met Hank Gathers ever forgot him. He, uh, he, he touched men's souls. He really did. What was the most surprising thing that you learned while interviewing people for their book? Well, I think the the, the thing I just mentioned to you was the first thing, that, that, that he had such a profound effect on everybody around him. Uh, you know, Bill Raftery once told me that the definition of a star on a basketball team is, is seldom used in the correct context. He told me that a star is someone who makes everyone around him a better player. And that was Hank Gathers. He made every person on that team, every player on that team, a better player. And he never, Hank never had anything come easy to him. He had to work for everything. He grew up in a horrific uh, housing project in North Philadelphia. He had been battling odds since the day he was born. And uh, he, he dared to dream in a place where dreams go to die and where everyone else saw destruction, despair, devastation, Hank saw opportunity. And he, he, he had a dream, and his dream was to get his mother and family out of the projects. And that dream, in his mind, could only be realized if he made it to the NBA. And he followed his dream to the end. And I think, you know, that's a message that all of us could use. I mean, if, 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 if you care about your dreams, just follow them and pursue them and don't give up. Kyle, you really did a wonderful job of, you know, telling the story of Hank Gathers from the time he was born until the time he died and even after he died and and some of the legalities that took place after he died. Um, This Loyola Marymount team, I mean, I was a part of it. And sometimes when you're a part of things, you don't fully understand them until years later, like I'm beginning to or have in the last few years. Why do you think this team is so fondly and vividly remembered by people today? Well, I'll tell you uh, that that you asked me earlier about this, uh, what what stood out in my mind. But that 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 team, uh, in in my opinion, what happened here is when Hank Gathers died, that became a national story and a huge national story and, and all over the country. And this and, is a uh, small school and, on a bluff in in oh, Marina yeah, Del Rey. Oh, yeah. This isn't and, USC and he, he or UCLA. A, you have to remember he had led the nation, as you know, in, in scoring and rebounding as a junior. So he was a very very high-profile player. And when he died, it made headlines in, from New York to Los Angeles and everywhere in between. Well, this team that, that uh, Paul Westhead had brought together at Loyola Marymount University employed what he called uncreatively for a Shakespearean scholar, simply the system. But the system was a fan-favorite way of playing basketball. It was 40 minutes of intense up-and-down shoot every four or five seconds. 
but what what I think gets lost, uh, Brian, in in the story, and I hope I did a, a job, a good job with it in the book, is when Hank Gathers fell to the court. It was on March fourth, nineteen ninety. The NCAA tournament began on March sixteenth. In those eleven or twelve days in between his death and the time that they had to begin play in a single elimination tournament, that team. Devoted their time to, to spent their time uh, grieving, attending a memorial mass on the very court where Hank Gathers had died right before their eyes. Then they flew across country to Philadelphia to a three and a half hour emotionally draining funeral service. They watched his body being lowered into the grave, and then they had to take the court. And in my opinion, no team in the history of the NCAA tournament has ever entered competition under more arduous conditions than Loyola Marymount University did in 1990, and no team ever has performed more brilliantly. They captivated the hearts and minds of a nation. It, that that story transcended sports, and they turned a tragic event into a triumph, and the, the, the nation followed them, cheered with them, cried with them, and and just was captivated by them. Well, I think you hit it on the head. I was there for all of those moments. I was there calling the game the night he died. I was at the funeral at uh, Loyola Marymount. I accompanied the team and Hank's body on a plane to Philadelphia and saw him lowered into the ground. And I remember from the moment he was lowered into the ground and we were accompanied by police escort back to the airport until the moment the team was eliminated from the NCAA tournament by UNLV, everywhere they went, people wished them well. People were lining the streets for this team, wishing them well, waving the hankies as they went to the games. And I think they became America's team during that tournament. And I guess the thing that's remarkable to me is we still see the video of Bo's left-handed free throw, and it's such an iconic image on this tournament. If you were to name the top five iconic images in the last 25 years, that's got to be one of them, don't you think? Well, I think it's one of the most memorable moments in the history of the NCAA tournament. The CBS will replay it every year, and they always do. Uh, One one of the things I found out in researching this story is – one one of the players brothers and his mother flew to uh Oakland for the second and uh, second round games and as they and he was wearing his brother's Loyola Marymount practice jersey and as he walked down the aisle to his seat with his mother on the plane everybody started to applaud and he said when he got off the plane in Oakland or San Francisco, I guess it was, and, and started walking through the airport, people would just cheer. <laughs> and, and the, you know, it was just unbelievable. I mean, it, 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 was, it was truly a magical, mystical, inexplicable two weeks uh, in which these kids, 21-year-old, 22-year-old kids, uh, performed uh, just so above the norm. Uh, I mean, you can envision, for instance, uh, uh, suppose Indiana State went into the NCAA tournament and they said, "Oh, by the way, Larry Bird can't play." You know, I mean that that's the that that's the effect that Hank's death had on that team. But they refused to lose, and they dedicated themselves in that tournament to Hank's memory. And they said it, that there was no no question that they were going to play because Hank would have kicked their butts if they didn't. And all of them told me, all of them, that they sensed his presence. That it was almost like they were playing six against five through that tournament. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. We've got a few minutes left. What's happened to Hank's family? Uh, Give us the update on that. I know you talk about it in the book, but uh, give our audience an update of what's happened to Hank's family. There were a lot of, you know, hard feelings and lawsuits and things like that right after Hank died. But, you know, I saw Lucille Gathers uh, at the reunion a few weeks ago, and it seems like that's been patched up, that relationship between the university and the Gathers family. Well, yes, it, it has over the years. And, uh, of course, uh, as I said earlier, Hank's dream from the time he was 10 years old was to uh, get to the NBA, land a big contract with the NBA, and get his family out of the uh, projects. And uh, in the end, after the litigation uh, unrolled and unraveled and was settled and so forth, um, the settlements from all the litigation uh, enabled Hank to realize his dream. And his mother and uh, brothers were able to move out of the projects into the suburbs. He had a young son that uh, that I know you know about, and and that son uh, received a settlement as well and uh, was able to move to the suburbs with his mother. So in the end, uh, though Hank died trying to achieve his dream, his dream was realized uh, for those he left behind. Last question. What is the legacy, in your opinion, of Hank Gathers? I know that's a broad question. He's had impact in so many different ways, but Give me uh, a minute on the legacy of Hank Gathers. Well, first of all, I want, I want people to know that he, he was a great role model for young people. He stayed in school. He didn't do drugs. He got his degree, uh, honored his family, brought honor to his university. But beyond that, I think uh, that the attention that was focused on sudden cardiac death in young people as a result of Hank's death uh, brought a heightened awareness uh, among the medical community and uh, team physicians about the risks that, that are involved and uh, the enhanced protocols that uh, came about after Hank's death have probably saved many lives. And there's one instance in the book where the doctor that actually attended to Hank on the court that night uh, later became an NHL uh, team physician and insisted that AEDs, automatic external defibrillators, be present at every NHL hockey rink and shortly thereafter, Yuri Fisher of the Detroit Red Wings fell to the ice in a cardiac arrest, and that AED that was there because the doctor that had tried to save Hank's life insisted it be there, he, he survived. And, and Hank's legacy continues to live on, and Bo continues to honor him with his foundation, which is called 44 for Life, which is educating people about CPR and the use of AEDs. And uh, I, I think it's a great legacy, and, and it, it, it's something that is very heartfelt in Bo Kimball. Kyle Keiterling, the author of the book Heart of a Lion, The Life, Death, and Legacy of Hank Gathers. You can order the book at Hank Gathers Book. Dot com. You can go on to Amazon.com. It's in bookstores. It's flying off the shelves. You better go get your copy. Uh, I've read the book, and I'll tell you this, Kyle. You know, for 20 years, and I told you this when we met, a lot of people approached Keith and myself about, I want to do a movie, I want to do a book, and we always wondered what their motives were. You have honored Hank. I thank you for that. I'm glad that the story is out there in an accurate form. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that, Brian. Thank you, Kyle. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. A few weeks ago, we were down in Los Angeles to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the 1989-90 Loyola Marymount men's basketball team. They were honored at halftime of the game. And before the game, 
I had a chance to catch up with some of the key members of that team. All right, I'm with Terrell Lowry, one of the main cogs of the 1989-90 basketball team. Terrell, we're catching up with all the members of the team. You had a pretty good baseball career. What have you been up to the last 20 years? Well, you know, between uh, the baseball uh, and uh, family life, baseball, I actually stopped playing baseball about uh, eight years ago. Uh, family, uh, married with three kids. Uh, I do, do a little bit of real estate. Also, me and my wife operate a foster family agency. You know, I reside in Sacramento, California right now. So, it's been keeping me really busy. Uh, three kids are full activity. So, that's, you know, that's what I'm doing. It's, that, that consumes me right now. You were very, very close with Hank. What are some of your fondest memories of Hank? You know, the, uh, just Hank's uh, ability to compete, you know, at the highest level. Uh, remembering him, uh, you know, he was willing to compete in anything, even things that he wasn't good at. You know, I just, I guess the biggest uh, you know, memory for me with Hank is that, you know, uh, him challenging me to strike out, knowing, my, you know, my baseball background. And, uh, you know, for him, you know, he felt like, it didn't matter. You know, he, he went anywhere. And that, that's really what sticks out with me, with Hank, uh, you know, his ability to compete on, on any level and his drive. Yeah. What sticks out uh, as far as the 89-90 season goes? There were so many ups and downs. The tournament was an emotional run. Uh, what are some of your fondest memories of uh, that year? Uh, it, was, it was a great year. Uh, you know, we, we came into the year with high expectations. You know, uh, we, uh, we had... Won 20 games the year before, major NCAA tournament, NCAA tournament the year before, uh, and uh, you know, but Bo missed 18 games the year before, and so for uh, him to come back healthy, uh, we're, we're being a, a year older as a team and more mature. Uh, Hank coming off leading the nation and scoring the rebound, and we really thought that we were poised to make, you know, to do some damage, uh, you know, in the season. We had a you know a high 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 octane offense and uh, a tough schedule, um, you know, and, and it turned out to be a, a great year. Um, you know, obviously, uh, Hank's death was a, tra- is a tragedy and, uh, you know, a really emotional roller coaster for us. But, um, you know, I, I think that, w- you know, the things that we set out to do, a goal as a team, with us being as close as uh, we were as a team, I think we were able to com- accomplish those things. Do you still keep in touch with Hank's family and with uh, some of your former teammates? Yes and yes. Uh, I talk to, to uh, Hank's brothers uh, from time to time, uh, probably a couple times a year, uh, uh, Charles and uh and, uh, you know, he relays messages. I don't get to talk to the mom directly, but she really relays messages. Um, and I, I talk to uh, Bo uh, often, uh, Tony, Greg. Uh, you know, I, I still keep in contact with several other guys. That's great. Well, it's great to catch up with you, and uh, best of luck in the future. Hopefully it's not another 20 years before we uh, catch up again. Time flies, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And it's a pleasure to be here. And, uh, yeah, I, I look forward to, you know, speaking again. Not 20 years away from me now. Thanks, Trell. I'm here with Tom Peabody, known as the human bruise during his uh, playing days at Loyola Marymount. Tom, what we're asking people this weekend is it's been 20 years. What are you up to now? What have you been doing for the last 20 years? Uh, I was very fortunate married an LMU alum who has taken very good care of me, and we have four beautiful kids. And I uh, went to law school for, at Loyola, graduated in 95, and I've been practicing law for the last 15 years. Uh, defending primarily physicians and hospitals and medical malpractice cases. Wow, that sounds uh, complicated. Much beyond my realm of uh, comprehension. So look back 20 years ago. What are some of your fondest memories from this team? What do you remember most about that 89-90 season? 
I, I think that when I look back, uh, you know, there's a lot of memories that can come to mind. It would take hours for me to explain them. Uh, but this weekend where we've come back for this great reunion and celebration of that season, uh, I learned what I really missed the most, and that was just great guys, all with a very common goal. We had a great leader who had set that goal for us early, and uh, the fact that we all came together and were able to accomplish it was really what I remembered most. Just what a great group of guys, uh, a real family for me. Have you been able to keep in touch with some of the guys? I do. I do keep in touch with a lot of guys still on, from that team as well as the guys who were ahead of that team. Enoch Simmons I still talk to frequently. Uh, just another great person, and uh, a lot of the guys here, Brian and Christian, that still live down in Orange County, and Jeff Fryer. Uh, Bo and I talk frequently. We email a lot. So, you know, with the electronic age and everything that's changed, it's made it a lot easier for us to, to com- continue to communicate. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is that we probably don't see each other enough, but that's just a function of life. When you look at the game now, whether it's the NBA or college basketball, what do you see different? I mean, there's so much different, but I asked Jeff this earlier. What do you see the biggest differences are? I th- Number one, it's the size and skill level of the players that are out there now. Uh, you do not see guys, when when I played, I'm 6'3", or, and I was 195 pounds when I played, and uh, that would not cut it in today's world. Uh, but the bottom line is you're also seeing a much faster-paced game, not too dissimilar from what we tried to do, uh, maybe not to the level that we did it, uh, but you're seeing bigger guys, more athletic guys, able to run the floor a lot faster than they did in the past. Uh, it's just it's an amazing game, and it's the, the amount of talent that you see out there now across the board, just not only the NBA, across all of Division One basketball, that the talent's extraordinary. And it, you see a lot of parity now with the guys moving to the NBA early, but uh, the the guys who can do it, it just impress me so much. I mean, they they can play this game like it really should be played. You roomed with Hank Gathers in college. Uh, give me your best Hank Gathers story. Everybody's heard the fish story, so I'm not going to go with that one. Uh, I think my favorite was him coming out uh, and boxing, shadow boxing in our apartment. Uh, he would put my surf booties on, and he would go around the entire room, and he would get himself so worked up it was like he was 30 minutes into a game dripping sweat, shadow boxing for 20 minutes, and then he'd look at you and say, you ready to go? And I'd say, look at the size of that man. There is no way in the world I'm going to get in a ring with him. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. Brian, it's always a pleasure, and I wish you good luck. Thank you. We're here with Jeff Fryer, the sharpshooter of the 1989-90 Loyola Marymount Lions. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Brian. So, 20 years. Can you believe that it's been 20 years since uh, the great feats of the 1989-90 Loyola Marymount basketball team? Well, the last 20 years have gone by pretty fast, and uh, it doesn't seem like it's been that long, but it's really good to see all the guys again. And it, it just uh, Some of them have changed, but at the same time, they haven't changed. So it's really good to see them. Let's go back to 1989-90. What are your fondest memories from that season? Obviously, so many highs and some really bad lows, but what do you remember most about that season? I remember most, especially the NCAA tournament when we had that magical run, Uh, but uh, especially the LSU game back during the middle of the season when we played against Shaq and Stanley Roberts and Chris Jackson at the time. And uh, that was... Uh, a big game for us. We we happened to lose in overtime, but uh, that was a big mark on our on our season where we 
knew we could play with the big guys. And uh, and also the UNLV game, the first game of the season, where we made a good run at them uh, at UNLV when they were number, ranked number one. So we knew we had a special team and uh, knew we could do some, some good things. After Hank Gathers died, there was so much emotion. And I remember coming to the practices and, um, they were very intense, and you guys just kind of wanted to get back on the court after going to the funeral and traveling cross-country to, to Philadelphia. Um, for me, kind of the signature moment of the NCAA tournament that year was the left-handed free throws. But I also remember your amazing game against Michigan where you made all the three-pointers, and I think that record still stands today. Um, talk about being in the zone that game. I mean, it's like anything you threw up was going to go in that night. Well, I really have to attribute it to the, our point guards because they, they would get me the ball at the right place at the right time. And it was just easy for me because I had the green light from Coach Westhead, game in and game out. And uh, I just have to give our point guards credit because they really fed me the ball, and it was just a matter of hitting my open shot. So it was, uh, we were able to run them up and down the court and uh, get some a lot of open looks. I say to this day... That there's no other team in the country that would have beaten you guys in that tournament other than UNLV. They had some amazing athletes. They had the ability to run up and down the court with you. Do you ever look back and think what could have been that you guys were so close to winning it all? Yeah, well, I remember the game before that they were playing Ball State, and Ball State had a chance to beat them at the last last seconds. And I, I figured if that would have happened, it would have been uh, on to the Final Four for us if we could have played Ball State. But I, I knew that UNLV was going to be motivated and, and up for us because they had a very talented team, obviously, and uh, a lot of uh, potential NBA players. So um, that was a tough game for us and just kind of ran into uh, some a talented group of guys. We're here with Jeff Fryer, the sharpshooter of the 1989-90 Loyola Marymount men's basketball team. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Jeff, um, talk about what you've been doing since 1989-90. One of the things that we're finding out this weekend is kind of what people have been up to. I know many of us have lost touch with each other. Uh, Maybe you can talk about what you've been doing. Well, right after... uh that season I, I tried out with the Phoenix Suns and then I played the summer with the Houston Rockets and that didn't work out so I played in the CBA for two years under uh, one year under George Carl who's now at the Denver Nuggets I played in Albany and then uh, after that I played in Germany for three years retired and then went back to Germany for two more years and uh, then I started coaching and placing guys overseas so I had a uh, I was an agent and placed players in European leagues and I did that for about eight years and now I just started working in investment banking um, with a firm down in Irvine California and uh, been learning a lot and uh, I really like like it and uh, just learning the ropes so I've been doing that for about a year now and uh it's uh, I'm working with my dad, and, and he's a good mentor for me, and, and so it's it's going well. I really enjoy it. How connected are you to the game of basketball still? Because I know you love it. Right. I've always coached, so I still train kids and uh, run camps in the summer. So I'm still connected that way. And I do come up to the LMU games about two or three times a year, so I'm connected that way as well. So, uh, yeah, and I do like to watch the Miami Heat play. So it's... Uh, 
it's fun following them. Um, and, uh, yeah, I really feel I'm still connected to basketball, so it's it's great. With Facebook and the Internet, it's become easier to stay in touch with people. Do you hope after this weekend that you're able to better stay in touch with uh, some of your teammates from 20 years ago? Yeah, that would be good. You know, we a few of them are on Facebook already, so I do keep in touch with them that way a little bit. But it, it's good to see them, and it's be, it'd be good to kind of keep in touch over the years and and uh and until the next time we meet well jeff thanks for the time and uh it's good to see you this weekend all right thanks brian appreciate it all right i'm with bo kimball everyone knows bo kimball the left-handed free throw we see it all the time still an iconic image bo for the last 20 years what have you been up to uh, primarily in philadelphia uh real estate developer rehab and low-income housing uh for low-income families uh, the last year or so, my greatest work um, is I started the 44 for Life Foundation. Uh, we're focusing on uh, educating people about the importance of sudden cardiac arrest. Um, we're training people in CPR, and we're donating defibrillators. What we're trying to do is make sure what happened to Hank Gathers um, family, um, we can try to minimize that situation by putting defibrillators in public places. So um, I'm very proud of the work that we've done in a year. In D.C., we were a part of. Uh, helping city council uh, mandate all federal buildings, all parks and rec centers now have defibrillators. So Hank's death and another gentleman's death, Robert Carter, um, was the purpose for me starting the foundation. Now I hear you're working with the NBA retired players. Is that true? Yes, yes. I've been fortunate. I've been blessed to be uh, voted on the uh, board of directors for the Retired Players Association. It's a, it's a three-year appointment. Uh, you can serve two, three-year appointments. So I'm very proud to be to be able to use my um, impact and let my vote set the agenda for you know services that are going to benefit the retired players. Some players are, have done very well, but some players need uh, an opportunity to uh, have services that can better their life, whether it's insurance, uh, rather it's getting jobs. Uh, a lot of some players have fallen on hard times, so the organization is is uh, to serve them. So I'm very honored. Now you were childhood friends with Hank. You went to high school with him. So many memories from the '89 90 season. But I've been asking everyone: Is there something besides the left hand free throw? Because that's what sticks out in everyone's mind. Is there something that st- sticks out in your mind from that season or the tournament run? Well, the greatest part is that we. Um, they, I see those guys as family. You know. Um, I think of love and as a family that when you get together with your brothers, you know, all you want to do is have fun and remember the great things. And when we were working hard in, in, uh, in those years at Loyola, we never thought it would be part of history. But the fact that we are and uh, our hard work is, uh, is in the history books, it just makes us feel good that all that running, all the hard work really just was part of something special in college basketball history. I mean, you must walk down the street and people still, hey, LMU, great job, left-handed free throw. I mean, 20 years later, this it's like pop culture. It really is. Yes, well, one of, the, one of my uh, really surprising moments, I have two. I was in Africa, and I had people come up to me in Ghana, Africa, and they knew all about Hank Gathers. They knew all about Bo Kimball, and they knew all about Loyola Marymount. And uh, to be able to be on another continent and then to know about our university and our success made you feel real proud. I was also on a tour with the Globe Trialers, and, uh, and I was on Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's team, and we went to 22 countries. I knew that after the game, I, I understood why the Globe Trialers line was very long for autographs. I knew Kareem Abdul-Jabbar being a Hall of Famer. I knew why his line was long. 
but I guess I was a little too humble to realize that my long, my line, the Bo Kimball line was just as long as theirs. And that made me realize that, you know, I mean, I'm very proud of what I achieved. And I'm very proud to be associated with Hank. Now, I know you still talk to the Gathers family a lot. Update us on how they're doing and what they're up to. Uh, well, well, first of all, his mother and, his, and two brothers are here. Uh, Derek and uh, Charles Gathers and his mother's Lucille Gathers. Uh, they're here. Um, Lucille is retired from being a, uh, a nurse and uh, working in a hospital for many years. Uh, Derek Gathers is a mentor uh, working with children. And uh, Charles Gathers as well working with children. So um, uh, D- Charles Gathers, um, I'm sorry, Derek Gathers um, is doing some work also for the foundation that has um, some benefit to community work that's going to benefit young uh, children. So they're, they're doing, they're active in the community and that's pretty great. And it's the association, the foundation is affiliated with Hank. Is there a website for the foundation if people want to learn more, if they want to contribute dollars? Is there a place they can go? Thank you so much for mentioning that. Yes, is is uh, www.the-number44forlife.org. And so, uh, again, it's www.the-number44forlife.org. Unfortunately, it takes tragedy to, to bring on um, this kind of work, but I believe in anything bad can come up good. Good can come of things that's bad. So, uh, you know, thanks for mentioning it. Keep up the great work. It's great to see you. Uh, thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure. Thanks, pal. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. Every championship team has one thing in common, good coaching. And I want to be your coach, your media coach. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form New School Media Coaching. New School Media Coaching uses a fresh and interactive approach for educating our clients about dealing with today's media landscape. Whether you're an athlete, a coach, or a front office executive in the sports or business world, we'll prepare you for communications with the masses in today's social media world where everything is on the record. And just like any good coach, we'll help you practice your new skills and we'll be there to provide constructive feedback every step of the way. With a combined 40 years of experience, we're veteran coaches, but we use a new school approach. For an overview and a list of our services, visit newschoolmediacoaching.wordpress.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. Keith Foreman, your fondest memory of the 1989-90 season. So hard to come up with it, but I think it might be on the bus with the team, driving from the hotel in Baton Rouge to the Pete Maravich Assembly Center, the Deaf Dome, Hank Gathers grabs the mic at the head of the bus and starts playing Universal Studios' tour guide. We show up to the Deaf Dome. The doors open up, and there's like 500 to 1,000 basketball fans waiting for this LMU team to get off the bus. And, of course, we walk in. We play the only overtime game of the season. Lose, unfortunately, 148-141, but come on. The easy answer for me would be to say the Michigan game because to me it was the culmination of the system. It was like an orchestra where everything was working perfectly and the system just, it was beautiful to watch that day. 149-115, the defending champions run off the court. But I guess what I would say is the first half of the LSU-LMU game. 
Shaquille O'Neal, a freshman, had 11 blocked shots. He blocked Hank's first five or six shots. Hank went on that day to score 48 points. And if you look at the game that was Hank Gather's signature game that showed that he did have the heart of a lion, that he wouldn't be intimidated by anyone, it was that game. Because a lot of players would have said, you know what? I'm folding the tent and going home. This guy has got my number. Hank didn't do that, went on and scored 48 points, and that was the persistence of Hank Gathers. I want to thank Bill Husak, the athletic director of Loyola Marymount, John Schaefer, the SID at Loyola Marymount, our show staff, Keith Foreman, Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harris, and Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon and New School Media Training. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com or go to iTunes and click in Sports Business Radio. For our podcast listeners this week, we are doing a bonus segment. Keith and I are going to talk more about the 1989-90 Loyola Marymount men's basketball team. We're going to bring you some additional interviews. So if you're listening on podcast, that segment will follow immediately following this segment. Stick around for that. I'm Brian Berger for Keith Foreman. Enjoy your week. We'll see you next week on Sports Business Radio. This is a Sports Business Radio podcast exclusive segment. Now your hosts, Brian Berger and Keith Foreman. Well, we're continuing our discussion Looking back 20 years ago, the 1989-90 Loyola Marymount men's basketball team, Keith and I had the pleasure of being behind the mic for that season. And I think the further we've gotten away from that season, the more we see just how terrific it was and how important it was and impactful it was to so many people. Well, and all you have to do is look at the box scores and just start going through the numbers, points and rebounds and assists and it's just it's ludicrous. It, it's just ridiculous to think that a team was putting up those kinds of numbers. I mean, they were playing two games in one game, basically. Each each half being scores like sixty seven to fifty four. Well, I mean, I think we were just looking at the box scores. So LMU went halfway across the country to play LSU one forty eight one forty one overtime. And then the next day, yeah. they're playing a game, and how many points did they score? The very, it was 157 against USF. So it's like cartoon numbers that they were putting up. And, Keith, when you think about this basketball team, you know, and if you read Kyle Keiterling's book, which is a great read and kind of sets it up from the time Hank Gathers was born, but it was the perfect storm that season. You had... Paul Westhead, who had Philadelphia ties, who loved to run this up-tempo style of basketball. You had Bo Kimball and Hank Gathers, who were refugees from USC. They loved to play up-tempo. You had Tom Peabody and Jeff Fryer from Southern California. Tony Walker, who was a JC transfer. Terrell Lowry came from Northern California. You brought this whole cast of characters together, and they just fit. And made beautiful music and scored a ton of points in this system. Well, and let's not forget the teams uh, that that West had coached, you know, the few years leading up to that 89-90 season. 
you know, like a lot of good teams or a lot of good programs, they had already been knocking on the door. You know, there were losses in the NCAA tournament to, you know, teams like uh, Rasheed Wallace's North Carolina team, you know, with Enoch Simmons leading the way, you know, in that 88-89 season. Um, you know, and, and players like Mike Yost and, you know, and so definitely the groundwork had been laid. And then when Gathers and Kimball became eligible after they transferred from SC and Per Steamer came over from Sweden. And, you know, like you said, this whole cast came together. That's when West had really, you know, went back into the laboratory and cooked up some concoctions and ran those guys up and down the sandy hills of Manhattan Beach and cranked up the heat in the gym. And by opening day, man, there wasn't a team in the country that was ready to handle them. It, well, it was funny. Bruce Woods in the book by Kyle Keiterling is quoted as saying that year that Bo Kimball and Hank Gathers had to sit out after they transferred from USC to LMU, Corey Gaines had transferred from UCLA. So you've got these right. three blue chip players waiting, salivating to play in the program. They had to stop practicing the regular players against these three incoming players because they were humiliating them and it was affecting their confidence. So, you know, they were chomping at the bit literally to get onto the basketball court. And once they did, they did great things well, for the program. Yeah, I mean, it's, all, it's like harking back another 15 years to the days of, you know, John Wooden's UCLA dynasty teams when, you know, the freshman team led by Lou Alcindor right. was beating, you know, the varsity team back when the freshmen weren't even allowed to play at that. Heck, you couldn't even dunk the ball at NCAA basketball then. But, yeah, I mean, it was that same type of situation. So in 2005, we did a show, Keith and myself, right here on Sports Business Radio, where we really took you back to the night of March 4th, 1990. We played audio of our call, which we hadn't listened to in a long time. We played audio of the press conference down at Daniel Freeman uh, Hospital with Brian Quinn, who was the athletic director at the time, and with the doctor who was attending to Hank Gathers. If you want to listen to that, you can go on to sportsbusinessradio.com. But we really wanted the show this week to be more of a positive reflection, and also catching up with some of the players that played on that team. You heard from some of them in our show earlier, but we want to bring you a few more interviews. Here's a conversation with Marcellus Lee, who was really, his nickname was Hub. He was just a, a fun-loving, joyful guy on that team. Big guy, but uh, very, very playful. Marcellus, uh, what are you up to now? Uh, working out in Orange County, working with Orange County Probation, um, working with kids, something I enjoy doing. So that's where my career is going to be. What's your, your best memory of that 89-90 season? Actually, my best memory is going to be the whole four years I was here. And that one year when we went all the way to the Elite Eight, that I didn't know how much of an impact that had on everybody around us. And that was a special moment. When you walk down the street now, or when you run into people, you tell them you played on that team, uh, people still remember, don't they? You don't know how surprised. I've traveled all over the world, man, and people in other countries know about us and what we did and how we ran. So it's like, this is like a blessing. This is really, really a blessing, man. Good to see you, Marcellus. You too, man. Thank you. Keith, that's a common theme that we heard from the players when we interviewed them a few weeks ago. No matter where they've gone in the last 20 years, 
people remember that team, not only in the United States, but all over the world. This team left an impression on many people. Well, and that's what any of us, whether you were broadcasting, writing, managing, training, coaching, playing, you know, or just, you know, a student fan of the game. That's what any of us close to it didn't realize. We were in such this bubble. We were so, you know, so much along for this ride. We had no idea how this story had kind of, you know, grasped so many people around the country and even around the world. And so you're right. You know, now today when you bring it up, people are like, oh, sure, Jeff Fryer, Hank Gathers, Bo Kimball, you know, they can immediately recall stuff. And the cool thing really quickly about Marcellus Lee is that, you know, here's one of the guys that actually didn't get to play a whole lot on that team, on this team, but was such an integral part, was such a locker room guy, was right. such a good guy, you know, on the bus, in the airports, in the locker room. And then, like he said, to hit that shot, you know, that three-pointer to uh, nail the nail in the coffin, so to speak, against Michigan. Oh, my gosh, that was crazy. You know, you bring up a good point. A lot of times on teams, there's a few bad apples, so to speak, or there's guys that you're just like, you know, It'd be so much better if this guy wasn't around. There wasn't one guy on this team that you looked at and didn't think, you know, what a terrific guy, good locker room guy, fun to be on the bus with. I mean, you and I were really lucky because we were on the bus rides. We were on the plane rides. We were in the hotel playing cards with these guys. Um, We spent as much time with them as if we were their teammates. And, you know, that's why a few weeks ago it was really neat to see some of them. I hadn't seen most of them in, in 20 years. And it was, you know, it was like yesterday that we saw them. And when you're good friends with someone or you've had fun times with them, you can go long stretches and you pick up where you left off. That's what I felt like a few weeks ago was at this reunion. Yeah, and, you know, I think we've said it a million times, just so fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. And Boy. I think that's how anybody who was part of this, you know, felt. And it just it's it, it was a very special thing to have been respected and included in such a special season. And for, you know, Coach Westhead to hold the bus up and wait for us to finish, you know, wrapping up all our equipment and running outside the gym, right. jumping up on the bus or – Heck, even being on the bus maybe sometimes before Westhead. I remember once we were passing out box scores after a, a loss to Gonzaga, and Coach Westhead slipped on the ice before he got on the bus. And, man, I, I think we got a good dose of what it's like to get, you know, screamed at by a coach. Um, that, was, uh, that was a little too real. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Let's talk for a moment about what some of the members of this team have gone on to. We've heard from some of them. But Coach Paul Westhead, who – Uh, If you are around on April 3rd on ABC, I believe it's 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time, a documentary is part of ESPN's 30 for 30, The Guru of Go. And this is a documentary on Westhead and on the 1989-90 basketball team. I've already seen some snippets. I've got some of them posted on my website at sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm eager to see what they turn this into, but it looks like there's some really good interviews with some of the players about that season. And, you know, overall, the ESPN 30 for 30 series has been really enjoyable to watch. Well, and and this story, this 89-90 season, really fits the bill perfectly for what 30 for 30 is all about. It's taking amazing stories or people and really breaking it down. And, you know, Westhead's exactly that kind of guy. This was not just a coach. He was a professor. I mean, I think you and I both took Shakespeare right. uh, classes, you know, from him. You know, and, and this was the kind of guy who 
just, you know, decided he was going to go for it and go with something completely different, and uh, it worked. Well, and it was a fluke that he got hired at Loyola Marymount. If you read Kyle Keiterling's book, which is a great read, um, Jimmy Lynham was hired as Loyola Marymount's coach. And Paul Westhead and his wife had the moving vans, moving them away from their house in Palos Verdes. When Jimmy Lynham calls Paul Westhead and says, I'm going to go coach for the Philadelphia 76ers. I'm not going to go to Loyola Marymount, where he had yet to coach a game. This job hasn't been posted. Let me get out of town, make my call, give the president, Father Lochran, uh, a heads up that I'm not going to be taking the job. You should call and tell them you want to come coach. They need a coach to step in right away. And that's how Coach Westhead got the job. So, again, when you look at these two superstars, Bo Kimball and Hank Gathers, who land on Westhead's lap, Westhead really should have never been the coach of Loyola Marymount. Then you have transfers like Tony Walker, and and the list goes on and on, but it all just came together to make this team that, you know, was really iconic. Well, and I haven't read Kyle's book yet, but the glue, the common denominator in so many of these conversations or or backroom transactions was Philadelphia. There are so many Philadelphia ties going back, you know, you know, years to who played in Philadelphia as, as, you know, at the different universities, St. Joe's especially, and then how they would all go on to uh, end up being coaches both in the NBA and in the NCAA. And, you know, sure enough, Hank and Bo end up at Loyola Marymount because of the Philly connection. Right, and um, that was one of the main reasons that they came was because they wanted to stay in Los Angeles after coming out to USC. They liked the sunshine and the weather and all that L.A. had to offer, but they didn't know where they were going to go. And um, when they found out, oh, here's this coach who loves to play an up-tempo style of basketball, and again, Kyle tells a funny story in the book about Bo and Hank go and sit down with Coach Westhead, and they sit in his office, and they watch this recruiting video of the system. And they both started laughing at Coach Westhead and said, Coach, come on. We're not stupid. We can tell that you sped up the film. And Westhead said, oh, no, that's how we play. And both of these guys immediately knew, where do we sign on the dotted line? That's the style of basketball that we want to play. Well, and of, and of course, you didn't. I don't know if you talked about this with Fryer when you were there recently, but Westhead would start screaming at him if he came down and didn't shoot the ball as soon as he got that outlet within seven seconds, you know, six seconds down in that corner there. Well, his motto was shoot until you miss it or shoot until you make it. And, I mean, you always had the green light, as he said before the tournament in that magical run, bombs away. He would tell each of them, you know, bombs away, Terrell, bombs away, Jeff. We saw him go, well, Tom, you know, and then everyone laughed. But, you know, Westhead was a terrific coach for this team for a number of reasons. One, the, the tempo was perfect for these athletes. Two... And I've thought about this a lot over the last 20 years. I don't know that there's a coach who could have handled the death of Hank Gathers and the sorrow on that team better than Paul Westhead did. He was so graceful. He was so eloquent. Everything he did following the death of Hank Gathers, whether it was at a press conference or during a game, 
it was just he he did all the right things and and he was the perfect guy for that job at that time but it was also the character the total character and chemistry of that team itself like you said there were no bad apples i mean that that was a real team so you take a real team then dealing with that kind of adversity which brings a team together even more and that's of course what fueled that whole run in the tournament well and the cool thing about a few weeks ago so we're talking about how there were a bunch of good guys on that team it's so cool to see that all of them, 20 years later, have gone on to success, whether it's Peabody as a lawyer, Bo starting 44 for Life Foundation, where he's trying to make sure that uh, there's not another Hank Gathers out there who has uh, an episode where he drops dead of a heart ailment. Um, Terrell doing wonderful things in Northern California, as you heard. So all these guys are good character guys. You haven't read about any of them being in trouble with the law or... Um, any kind of trouble, they've all been upstanding citizens. They're raising families. Good for them. And seeing them all lined up at halftime of that game a few weeks ago against St. Mary's, they all looked like they could have suited up and played the second half. They Holy were in good smokes. shape. Yeah, I mean, I would have put them out there in that second half against St. Mary's and uh, felt pretty confident. I mean, we joked at the time, everyone looked pretty good. But Pear Steamer looked like he had been cryogenically frozen over the last 20 years. He looked better today than he did 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it really amazing how these guys have aged so gracefully. And again, 20 years. In some regards, it seems like it was just yesterday. Another person we had a chance to catch up with at the reunion, Marcus Slater. He was a backup center on the team. Another great locker room guy. Uh, good buddies with Marcellus. Marcus, uh, what have you been up to the last 20 years? Well, I've been working in uh, health insurance. Um, been working for a uh, multinational conglomerate. Um, right now, my job title is a senior business analyst. I've um, been doing that for about five years. Uh, but I enjoy, I enjoy the work. Um, I enjoy working with uh, different types of people. So it's been fun. Is this the first time you've seen a lot of the guys, or have you kept in touch with them? Well, actually, they had the uh, Hall of Fame induction five years ago, and I was here for that. So, I but I haven't kept up with people as much as often as I should. But um, talk to Marcellus Lee a lot, and, and that's about it. Facebook, we're Facebook friends. So, your favorite memory from the '89 '90 season? I'm sure there's a lot of them, but try and give me one. The Michigan game. I mean, that was my my uh, memory. I, I talk to people all the time that remember that team, and they always talk about that particular game. So that's always going to be a, a fond memory for me. Marcus, good to see you. You too, man. Keith, uh, the Michigan game. You heard Marcus just talk about it. Uh, you know, again, as I said earlier in the show, it was like the symphony coming together and everyone just played beautiful music at the same time. The team and the system was running on all cylinders that day. Jeff Fryer set a record for three-pointers. Bo Kimball was doing his thing, and even Marcellus Lee throws in uh, a three-pointer at the end. Of all the games that season, that one was the game that truly took my breath away, and I think you know, that's when everyone said, this is the defending national champion. Steve Fisher had not lost a game as the head coach of Michigan in the postseason to that point, and Michigan got blown off the court by a loyal American. I remember the Detroit Free Press, the headline the next day was the Lions could have beaten the Pistons tonight. And the Pistons at the time were, uh, you know, one of the best teams in the NBA. Yeah, it, you know, the fact that the NCAA put the Lions in Long Beach 
even though they were an 11 seed, they stuck them at home and uh, featured that game. I mean, they were fully on board by that point as far as the hype machine. And so it got a huge national audience. Obviously, you're playing the defending national champions, a bunch of guys that were going to go on to pretty solid NBA careers, Ramil Robinson, Sean Higgins types. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was one of those games, too. We talked about how LMU against teams with big egos would kind of suck them into the, you know, free baskets. We'll give you that free ride uh, to the layup, the easy layup. We'll trade you a two for a three. Absolutely. And Michigan fell for it. And you could see just like a lot of the teams that thought they could run with LMU, by the midway point in that second half, it, they just shut down. Well, and you bring up a good point because a lot of people said the system was a circus. But what they didn't realize is, like clockwork, Loyola Marymount was a better conditioned team than almost anyone they faced except for maybe UNLV. And you could get to about the 10-minute mark in the second half, and the other team would hit a wall. And all of a sudden, the last 10 minutes of the game, Loyola Marymount would pull away, and that was the end of the game. And we saw it time and time again. And the conditioning of these players is something that wasn't talked about as much as it should have been. But Coach Westhead did a great job keeping them in great condition. He'd take them to the beach, and they'd run up the sand dunes before the season started. And as the season went on, they got stronger as many of their opponents were getting tired. Right, and it was very efficient, too. It might have looked crazy up and down the floor, but it was an extremely efficient system. Every guy on the team knew exactly what spot they were supposed to go, what lane they were supposed to fill, you know, the the, the sections on the court they were trying to force players to. And, you know, and there were just so many iconic moments, too, from that game. Certainly the left-handed free throw, you know, Pretty kind of brought a tear to a lot of people's eyes. Oh, many, many people's eyes. Well, the other thing about the system, last thing I'll say, is we saw why it didn't work in the NBA. So Coach West had left to go to the Denver Nuggets. To get pros to play 82 games at that intensity level, forget it. There was no way. But it was perfect for a college season. They finished 26-6, and so you have 32 games there. Um, And then you have to have highly conditioned athletes, which they did, but at the pro level, it just doesn't work. I wonder if uh, Coach Westhead, who's now the uh, head women's coach at the University of Oregon, um, isn't tempted to uh, try to pull this off with the women's game. Well, that's what he's doing. They're scoring lots and lots of points, and, you know, Coach Westhead, went on and won a WNBA championship with the Phoenix Mercury. So he's the only coach in the history of basketball who's won an NBA championship and a WNBA championship. And he's had great success with men, um, as he did with the Lakers when they won the NBA championship, as he did with Loyola Marymount, but also with women, with the Phoenix Mercury. And now he's scoring tons and tons of points with the University of Oregon women. And by the way... These aren't even his recruits. Right. When he starts getting players in there that play this up-tempo system of his, I think they'll score even more points. Well, and that's kind of my point is that, you know, will he stumble into the right combination of players, you know, women that could possibly do the same thing? Would you ever want to see him, you know, up here in Oregon where we're based, uh, it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that Ernie Kent is on his way out. What if they moved the the... Wizard of Westchester, Paul Westhead, 
over to be the men's coach. Oh. That would be kind of interesting, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Well, at least it would be an exciting brand of basketball. I mean, on the football side, and we digress, but Chip Kelly, you know, is kind of the Paul Westhead of football. His team score lots and lots of points. So if you made Paul Westhead your men's basketball coach as they open their new arena, you know, at least you're going to be scoring 100 points a night. Do it. No reason not to. Do you remember the USIU game? Kevin Bradshaw was a player on that team, and USIU, during the 1989-90 season, was in their final year of existence in basketball. They knew at the end of that season the program was going to fold. No more. Well, USIU had this game against Loyola Marymount circled on their calendar, and they knew that they wanted Kevin Bradshaw to set the all-time NCAA record for points in a game. Keith, I know you have some of the box scores in front of you. How many shots did Kevin Bradshaw take that night? Because I remember at the end of that game, we interviewed him on the postgame show Mm -hmm. just because I think he had 72 points. And his arms were in ice because he literally couldn't lift his arms anymore. I think he took almost all of his team's shots just because, again, he came into that game with the mentality that I'm going to score more points than anyone has ever scored. Scored, And I think LMU scored 181 points that night as a team. No, no, no. It was LMU scored 181 in the season before, the 88-89 season. Okay. It was this 89-90 season. Loyola won the game again. Uh, one fifty-two to one thirty-seven. Okay. Um, Bradshaw was twenty of thirty-seven from the floor, uh, scoring only fifty-four points. Okay, so maybe it was the season before where he had. I know he had seventy-two points. Yeah. So I think it was the season before. Yeah, but uh, that yeah that was um at Loyola Marymount that one eighty-one game, and it was at at um. At USIU, the LMU won one fifty two to one. Well, and people ask us all the time, "What was it like to call those games?" I mean, one hundred eighty one <laughs> points in a game. How'd you keep up with the action? But somehow we did it well, and and got used to it. So I did the play by play. You did the color commentary, and, right? And I got asked that question a lot. It was easy. You didn't have to think, right? You just called the you action. Just called it. It was happening. So you just called it. There was nothing. I would spend hours before the game writing up notes. Maybe I'd look down twice and actually get a chance to refer to a note. And then I got to know you so well and your style so well that I knew just, you know, my two seconds that I could jump in and interject something. And then when guys were at the free throw line or during the timeout, we could kind of provide some analysis. But, uh, you know, you had to have a lot of water at the table to – do the play-by-play. Yeah, it it was uh, it was unlike, and you know it made it actually made it hard to be a basketball fan for a long time after the fact. I think it took me years before I stopped screaming at people to shoot the ball when they brought the ball down the floor because you know we got to a point where if somebody was open, shoot the ball. Right. Well, and we were spoiled. I mean, we look back at college basketball games now where the final scores. You know, 67 to 64 or something like that. And we laugh and go, we used to have that by halftime. And, you know, sometimes we'd have that in the first 10 minutes of a game if you're scoring 181 points in the game. So it was funny. Everywhere we went, the circus was coming to town. LSU, you know, you heard their fans talk about, we can't wait 
to see our team, LSU, play an up-tempo style of basketball. Coach Dale Brown at the time wouldn't let his team play that style of basketball, but against the Lions, he let them loose. And everyone that we talked to after that game, which was on CBS, um, said that was the most exciting basketball game they'd ever watched. 148-141 overtime game. And again, as I said earlier in the show, I think that was the signature game for Hank Gathers, who, you know, here's this tough kid from the streets of Philly, uh, undersized. He's going against two seven-footers. He gets his first five or six shots blocked into the third row by Shaq. And a lot of guys would have said, you know what? I'm not going in the paint anymore. I'm, I'm sticking outside. And that wasn't Hank's game. He needed to go into the paint. But he pulled it together. He had 48 points in that game, and to me, at the end of that, I remember sitting on the bus looking at that box score going, oh my gosh, this guy just went against two seven-footers, and you know he's the one who came out on top. Well, and after that game, Dill Brown, I don't know if you remember this, got on the microphone, the PA mic, and actually, I mean, how many times do you see a, a coach, other than when somebody's thrown something onto the court, right. grab the PA mic and say to the crowd, Let's give another round of applause. This might be one of the greatest basketball games you'll have ever seen. Yeah, it really is. I mean, if ESPN Classic replays this game, I know they just replayed a bunch of uh, games, but I don't think the LSU game was amongst them. You got to see it. I mean, it, it was that and the Michigan game were the two best games that season, in my opinion. There's all kinds of speculation throughout a college basketball season also as to, you know, what players will be drafted, what players are going to go lottery. Well, it was that LSU game after going up against guys that, you know, obviously were going to play in the NBA that I think Hank Gathers especially proved he was going to be a top 10 pick. And at the time, I remember them talking about, I think it was Golden State. Um, Well, no, we wouldn't have known that at that point. I think, but... For some reason, I remember Golden State saying they were going to draft Gathers with the seventh pick. Yeah, I mean, remember that Hank, you know, earlier in the season had collapsed. He had missed some games. He had gone through a battery of tests. And again, Kyle's book, uh, Heart of a Lion, Life, Legacy, and Death of Hank Gathers, uh, details all of this. But... Really, that was the game, the LSU game, where Hank kind of showed people, all right, I'm back to form. And he had had a stretch of several games where his medication, Indrol, had made him numb, made him not be able to control his muscles. He wasn't himself. He was very frustrated. But after that game, it was kind of like, all right, NBA scouts, I'm back. And as you said, really from the beginning of the season until the end, there were NBA scouts following Hank and Bo wherever we went. And, you know, it worked out well for us because Eric Johnston, our Lions Den halftime host, you know, would get to interview Jerry West and, you know, you know all these other scouts that were out there, GMs that were out there scouting Bo and Hank. And, uh, you know, it was just interesting that Hank got back to the top of the mountain, so to speak, in that game and then, you know, a month later, he collapses and dies. You know, this is interesting. I just noticed this in the box score. But, you know, the LSU game, Bo and Hank combined together for 80 points. Uh, the next day against, I mean, less than 24 hours, um, they combined again 
for 80 points against USF. And that, that game's still the highest scoring, uh, highest score ever in, in a WCC game, the 157-115 over USF. Well, again, it speaks to the conditioning of these guys. They fly halfway across country, play a game the next day after playing a 148-141 overtime game yeah. and put up 157 points. It's, it's really uh, amazing. I want to talk a little bit, um, just tell a, a few stories. Um, you know, number one, Hank Gathers wanted to get his family out of the projects. You know, he had a poor family. And um, his goal was to make it to the NBA, to make millions of dollars, and be able to move his family out of the projects. And when Hank collapsed the first time, there were doctors that told him, Hank, you know, you're risking your life here. If you don't play basketball anymore, we feel like you can probably live a, a long life. But uh, vigorous activity is probably not the best thing for your heart. But, you know, Hank was a little bit of a gambler. He loved playing the ponies, and, you know, we played cards with him. And um, I'm not saying he had a gambling problem, but, you know, he was a risk taker. And he bet on himself to make it to the NBA, and he didn't quite realize his dream. And, you know, that was sad. But as we talked with Kyle Keiterling about earlier in the show— you know, there was insurance payouts, and his family did get to realize their dream because of Hank to move out of the projects, and that's good news. Yeah, you know, and and there was a lot of, of, of difficult stuff that went on legally after this all went down, and unfortunately, that's what contributed to, I think, Loyola Marymount as a university really not, not wanting to do much with the basketball program. It kind of, the, the basketball program kind of stumbled along. And I, I felt really bad for Jay Hillock, uh, Coach Hillock, the following season because because of the success, they had this unbelievably difficult schedule. Which started in Maui. Yeah, at that Maui Classic tournament. God, there's some funny stories we can share from that season too. <laughs> um, but, of course, you know, you didn't have um, a lot of the horses that, that made everything work in 89-90. And so... Hillock, you know, was kind of pressured to run the system. You know, guys had been recruited because of the system. Coach Westhead obviously wasn't there anymore. And so it was a tough, that was a tough year. I mean, against some really good teams. Um, and they tried to please everybody and, 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 and be the circus, so to speak, on the road. Well, and they lost their top three players. Bo, Jeff Fryer graduated, and obviously Hank died. So, um, you know, when you take away any team's top three scores and the, the, cogs to your engine so to speak it was a tough task let's end on this it's good that as you said 20 years later lucille gathers the gathers family they were at the 20-year reunion you know there were a lot of hard feelings and lawsuits and uh legal things early on but at the end of the day the gathers family Loyola marymount they're back on the same page uh and to me, that's that's good news because, you know, that was a tough night. Everyone did the best they could that night to save Hank Gathers. And uh, I don't think there's anyone that you can point a finger at and say, you know, if they would have done this or that, Hank would be alive today. No. I think everyone did the best they could do that night. They all cared and loved Hank Gathers. 
And, uh, you know, it's a tragedy that he died, but I'm glad that the Gathers family and Loyola Marymount have patched up the relationship and that that's, uh, you know, it's a good good place to be now. And then, you know, and like you said, to have been there a few weeks ago and see everybody out on the court together, you know, uh, Paul and Cassie Westhead and, and Bruce Woods and, you know, essentially the entire team and the Gathers family and and then all the other people around the court and that were there the night before. I mean, it, it really felt like, I don't want to say closure, because everybody's going to continue to stay in touch and continue to tell these stories. But there was kind of some closure to the whole night, being in that gym and kind of closing your eyes and feeling and seeing everything that had happened. Well, and after they were honored at halftime when they all came together yeah. and they did the gathering, which yeah. was so popular you know, during that run in the NCAA tournament, to see them come together again and raise their hands in solidarity, uh, it was pretty cool. And look, the LMU men's basketball team is on the rise. There's hope in the future. Um, you know, I'm not going to say they're going to go out and win any NCAA championships anytime soon, but they beat Gonzaga, which was a ranked team. And there's hope if you're a Loyola Marymount Lions fan. So uh, good reason to be excited about the future of Loyola Marymount basketball. Yeah, and one last comment. You know, what What better way to celebrate the 20th anniversary of that 89-90 team as they did all year than to knock off a ranked Gonzaga team, the first team that's ranked, that LMU has beaten since the 89-90 season. And Loyola Marymount has not been back in the NCAA tournament since the 1990 season. So hopefully that will change. Again, I think there's a lot of optimism around the LMU basketball program. And, uh, you know, we'll be watching the tournament uh, coming up here. And to tie this back to Sports Business Radio, the WCC kicking off its second year in Las Vegas uh, home to the tournament, uh, which a lot of people questioned last year, and it was a huge success. It's already sold out this year. ESPN will show, I think, three of the games, um, and then FSN, I think, will show some of the other games. But it, it should be a very competitive tournament this year with really four or even five teams potentially with a chance to win it. Well, and we know when CBS is wrapping up the tournament and they're playing one shining moment, the iconic image of of Bo Kimball and his left-handed free throw, it will remain, you know, in my opinion, that image is one of the top three to five images, moments in the history of the NCAA tournament. So we appreciate you joining us here on Sports Business Radio this week. Hopefully you've enjoyed this bonus segment on our podcast. Again, thank you to Bill Huzak, the athletic director at Loyola Marymount, John Schaefer, the sports information director. They were very, very accommodating when we were there, and it was great to catch up with the players at the 20-year reunion. Hopefully it won't be another 20 years before we all get together again. For Keith Foreman, I'm Brian Berger. We'll talk to you next week on Sports Business Radio. Radio.